Luke, Luke chapter 24, beginning with verse 32. Luke 24, 32. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road, and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them, and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened, and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I, myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of boiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, all of Scripture is contrary to sinful, fallen man in various ways, and we are always slow to believe it, always slow to receive the truth of it fully. Lord, how much so? This news, this message which your, the Lord's own disciples so refused to receive at first, so resisted. Well, Lord, we pray that the power of your Holy Spirit would work through and break through our own doubts and unbelief. And we pray, Lord, that we'd receive with joy anew the message that Christ is risen indeed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning we consider Luke 24, verses 32 to 43. And here the subject is again the resurrection as we have considered these last couple of sermons. But now rather than focusing on the fact that they're so slow to believe in themselves, meaning pointing to the larger picture that that natural man just simply does not receive these things. Natural man is blind in the things of religion. Instead of focusing on that, or even on the means by which they learned this news, the, the means by which Christ is revealed to them, meaning the ordinary means of grace, the word of God and the sacraments, the focus here is on the nature of that resurrection. What kind of resurrection might it be? And what I mean to say is, was it an unconfirmed rumor? Was it the product of some gullible people wanting to believe something so badly that they sort of convinced themselves that Jesus sort of rose from the dead? Or was it some sort of metaphor, like people say today? A metaphor for new possibilities that were opened somehow by all this? Or was it that the disciples had merely seen a vision of Jesus? You know, these are some of the ways that the liberals used to deal with their confessions, which said very clearly, we believe in the resurrection, the risen Lord Jesus. And they said, yeah, we believe in the resurrection, 
in this kind of way. And they added some qualifications and some small print to make it mean really the opposite. And a flat denial of the bodily resurrection. The bodily resurrection was always one of the hallmarks of liberalism. Well, I'll say more about that because modern theology, even so-called evangelical theology, sometimes does that in less forthright ways. But I want to tell you that this is nothing new. This kind of thinking, this kind of suspicion, this kind of doubt that maybe it's not a real resurrection is nothing new at all. But it actually been there right from the beginning, not from the skeptics, not from the German higher critics, but from the Lord's own disciples. The first thing that occurred to them was something very much along these lines. Okay? Nothing new. This is just the darkness of the human heart manifesting itself. And these are the things that occurred to the disciples. Well, our text is here to shoot it all down, decisively, completely, and totally. It's not just a metaphor. It's not just a, he's not a spirit or a ghost. It's not a vision. It's not an inner experience. It's actually Jesus, the real Lord Jesus Christ. He's actually risen in deed and in body from the dead. This is the truest sense of the resurrection imaginable. And the Lord is at great pains to make sure that we understand it in this text. And he leaves really no stone unturned, no possibility for demonstration left in all of it. And so we need to be refreshed in these things. We need to understand and have great confidence. Well, the title is The Reality of the Bodily Resurrection. And there are just two points this morning. The Lord is risen in reality, and the Lord is risen in body, because these are the things that the text points out. He is risen in reality and in body. So first, the Lord is risen in reality. Verse 32, and they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together. Again, they had come. They had made it to, their, uh, to where they were going. And, or they, they had stopped to eat, you know. And uh, now they, they decide that they're going to go. Why? Because the realization that Christ is really risen leads them to go tell others. Now, they had heard the reports. And some people are saying that Christ is risen I don't know about that. Anyways, we have to go to Emmaus, and, and so they do. But when it comes to, when they understand, then they grasp that, no, no, he's really risen. It's not just a rumor. It's not just a report that we give semi-credence to. It's true. They get up that very hour, immediately return, because they know there are people who don't know this who need to know it. They need this information, and it is only right that they stop what they're doing and go and tell them about it. Now, we'll speak more about this, Lord willing, in a future sermon, dealing more particularly with what we're supposed to do with this information. But one of the great themes of this chapter is what people do with the information once they are convinced that Christ is risen. They go and tell others. They go and tell others. Now, what do they tell them? When they, when they return to Jerusalem and find the disciples all gathered together, what do they tell them? Verse 34, saying, the Lord is risen indeed. This is the crux. In summary, all the things that follow are summarized in these words. The Lord is risen indeed. That's the news. 
not just risen in some sort of way, but indeed. Now that word ontos is a word from which we get the word ontology. Now that's kind of a technical term, and not all of you would would be familiar with it, but ontology is the study of being, the study of reality, that which is and that which truly exists, right? And sometimes when we want to make, you know, intensify what we're saying in academic terms, we sometimes say this is an ontological reality. That's kind of saying the same thing twice, actually. But this is what is being said here. And to get a sense, to, we, can, we can look elsewhere in Scripture to see how that same term is used. For instance, in 1 Timothy 5, Honor widows who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Verse 16, If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them, And do not let the church be burdened that it may relieve those who are really widows. In other words, there are widows and then there are widows. There are widows who are bereft of their husband. They're certainly widows, yet they still have children to take care of them. And then there are real, real widows according to the strictest definition in which there's nothing there's no exception left there's no small print where you could possibly say they're total and complete real widows they're ontos widows well if there are widows according to the strictest and fullest definition this is resurrection according to the strictest and fullest definition and somehow it appeared it occurred to the disciples from Emmaus to make sure that they knew that because maybe they didn't. Maybe they were still in the same situation that they were, that they'd heard the news, they'd heard a rumor, and were suspecting that somehow this was just a kind of, uh, there was a mistake, it was just a vision, it's just uh, something other than the truest and fullest kind of resurrection. And I said, no, no, this is ontos resurrection. That's the news they give. Another example would be John 8.36. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Not just a fake freedom. That's what's on offer in the gospel, you know. You shall be actually free. No qualifications, no fine print. Free in reality. And this is a natural resurrection. There's no fine print. There's no qualifications. There's no legal work. The, the lawyers haven't gone through it and, and, and had to say with little, little asterisk and footnotes to say, well, you know, these qualifications and these restrictions, some of the restrictions apply. Right? No restrictions apply to the freedom that you have in Christ. There are no restrictions or special understandings to be given to the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is risen. It's true in the fullest possible sense. And has appeared to Simon, by the way. He goes on to say that. The summary is, he's risen indeed, but he's also appeared to Simon because Peter has already seen him by this point. They knew that. And they're saying Peter was not lying. Peter was not mistaken. Peter's not crazy. We also have seen the risen Lord Jesus. And let me tell you, it's true. They confirm the testimony of the apostle. That's, of course, what so much of this is about. 
And this network of, of seeing the Lord Jesus Christ and of confirming one another's testimony so that we are not in any doubt. We're not dealing with a testimony of one person. Because even in God's own law, we know that there are real limitations in, in the court of law as to what the testimony of one person will do. And the Lord is not leaving us with just that. He's making sure that all these stories agree. And in fact, that all these testimonies are confirmed and one testimony reinforces the other. And in verse 35, they told about the things that had happened to them on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Because even though the point is the reality of the resurrection, that's the point which they're mainly trying to get across. Even here, we do not forget how it is that knowledge of this resurrection can reach us it's through the means of grace, Right? So they're saying, look, you guys have, have heard the report. Peter's actually, uh, you know, seen him. And we have seen him too, actually. But let me, let's be clear that the way that knowledge really came home to us, when we, came, when we really understood he's re, he's, this is Antos resurrection, he's really risen, that was made known to us in the means of grace. That little point made, was made known to us in the breaking of bread. And so it's not merely a confirmation of the testimony. It is pointing us to how that knowledge is going to be known for them and for us. The means of grace. Now all of this is before Jesus appears. But we come now to the second point. The first was, again, that the Lord is risen in reality. The second is that the Lord is risen in body. In verse 36, now these these. As they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. I'll just stop before we go any further and and say that this is the Lord's heart towards his people. Many other things he could have said. But the very first thing he does, already knowing what's going to happen, already know what kind of response and reaction there's going to be, is to say peace. His desire is that they would have peace. And friends, this is why he came to earth in the first place. Because there was no peace for his people. No peace in this world. No peace in eternity. Because they had made themselves enemies with the living God. Bringing upon themselves the wrath of God for their sins. There was no peace. False prophets had come before and said, peace, peace. But there is no peace. But then the Prince of Peace came. Proclaiming the truest peace through himself as he laid down his life in atoning sacrifice for his people. And there is a way of peace that is open. And when the risen Lord Jesus Christ appears to them, he comes in peace and he says, peace to you. But strangely, they don't have peace at the moment, as I mentioned. In verse 37, it's amazing their response. But they were terrified and frightened And suppose that they had seen a spirit. They are not expecting to see someone alive. Still not. After all that they'd heard, they're not expecting to see Jesus alive. And when they see, they remember that he had been put to death. Most of them had seen his dead body, if not all of them. And then they see him alive. And they're terrified at it. They're terrified. Supposing that they had seen a spirit There is Jesus speaking to them, but they are so convinced. Please remember this. These are not gullible people 
who are doing anything they possibly can to find some idea of constructing that Jesus was risen because they were expecting it, and they've got cognitive dissonance, and when, when the resurrection didn't happen, then they have to kind of make up that he's risen. No, when the actual risen Lord Jesus Christ stares them in the face, they don't believe it. They think that they've seen a spirit. That's what comes to their minds. They think it's impossible. This must be a ghost. And Jesus knows this and asks them in verse 38, Why are you, are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? I told you I was going to be risen. I told you more than once. You, you, you know who I am by this point. All things are possible. I've told you that with the Lord. And he says in verse 39, after rebuking their unbelief in a very gentle way, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? Because there's no good reason for them. Verse 39, behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Now just stop right there. I myself. Right? Not a vision, not a ghost, not somebody who kind of looks like me. Not some sort of transference or any of these kind of things at all. It's me, myself. The same one who left you a few days ago, I'm back. Here I am. And look, you hold my hands and my feet. Handle me and see. You remember as the Lord appeared to Mary, the Lord, she of course came to, to lay hands upon her risen Lord. And the Lord said, don't handle me quite yet. But now that privilege is given to the disciples, and the invitation is given. Go ahead and and touch me and see. It's an amazing privilege. It's an amazing condescension that the Lord gives to them. You ought to say, I told you, then that should have been good enough. I sent the angel, and that should have been good enough. I sent reports to you from the women, and that should have been good enough. What is wrong with you people? And he says, go ahead. Handle me. Touch me experience. I don't want you to be in doubt. I don't want you to be troubled. I want you to to know for certain. And the invitation is for you. And my sadness is sometimes that that I I will I speak to people about the resurrection and I invite them, please, look, if you have any doubts, let's let's talk about it. If there's any kind of argument against the resurrection, let's explore it because we have nothing to hide. And sometimes people just kind of recoil because they actually prefer to keep some doubt rather than to, to take up the invitation. And friends, if, if you have any doubts about the resurrection, it is not the Lord's fault. This, this Lord is saying, touch me. Go ahead, I invite you to explore and to bring light, to open the doors, to open the windows upon that doubt and it will it'll flee away. So if you want to keep it, that's up to you. But it's not because the Lord has not provided evidence before you. Behold my hands and feet. What is he saying there as he tells them to touch him? Why is he pointing out his hands and his feet? (laughs) Because they saw the nails go through his hands and his feet. And those holes were still there. And he's pointing that out. It's not somebody else that looks like Jesus. It's the same one that was crucified 
and is now alive. And when he had said this, by the way, he says, handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. I'm amazed at that language. He says, look, I know you think I'm a ghost, all right? But you have to see I have flesh and bones. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Right? Now, we know that he actually did more than merely show them because we have John chapter 20, and verse 25 to 29, which I'll read. The other disciples therefore said to him, this is speaking to Thomas, we call him Doubting Thomas, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Right? Because the, the nails are pretty big, they're big enough to put a finger in. The spear in his side was even bigger, and the hole that would have been left from the spear would be big enough to put one's hand in. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You see, the Lord was so good even to doubting Thomas. Look, friends, we call him doubting Thomas, but he didn't leave that room, that incident, still in any kind of doubt at all. Because all avenues of doubt, any possibility, any shred, and keep, keep in mind what the human heart is. Throughout this whole chapter, they are grasping at straws, trying to find ways to disbelieve what is so clearly the case. Right? If there's any possibility left, any avenue left open to them, that's the thing they grasp on. The women are crazy. It was just a vision. Peter's lost his mind. He's it's a ghost, even when he appears to them directly. And all those avenues are being closed off systematically by the Lord, so there's nothing left but the conclusion that it's really him risen in body. And so in going back to our text in verse 41, But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? Do you think he's hungry? No, no. You see, he's thinking about one possible way. He's already shown them that he's got flesh and blood and bones. He's already shown them that he still has these scars that they saw. And now he thinks, well, I know they know that ghosts don't eat. Immaterial spirits do not eat. So therefore, I will do that. Now, that's a great condescension to them, to stoop to their level and to say, look, I will show you even by that. And he says, do you have any food? And he eats it. He eats it. So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. <laughs> Funny thought, isn't it? Lord, would you like some broiled fish? And he said, thank you. Great food. And he eats it. Because it's really him. He's really alive. In body as well as in soul. This is irrefutable proof that he was real. No one could have possibly been in that room 
and experienced those things and left having any legitimate doubts that he had been risen again just as he said in reality and in body. And I want us again to consider the links to which the Lord went in order to convince them. All right, what test did he not do for them? They'd heard. Now they hear his own voice. He's speaking to them. He appears directly to them. You get they see again. That's the idea that the, the people at Emmaus, you know, we, we heard this report. We saw the evidence that the tomb was empty, and yet him we did not see. Well, now, now they do. They see him. These people see him. They, hear, they have the means of grace. As the word of God reaches them now through the, the Emmaus disciples, that's what came to them first, the report that we read, the, re, the message that we're preaching. That's the message that reached them first, actually. But then Jesus appears in, 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 in body, and, and there he is in the flesh, and they can touch him, and so some of them do. And then finally he, he eats to demonstrate the reality of his resurrection. Why does he do all that? Of course, to reassure their own hearts. The whole point was to bring peace to them, yes. But also knowing that they would soon enough be called upon to spread this good news of the resurrection. Yes, even for a number of them to give testimony in court. They were actually going to go to the courts of their day and say, Jesus is alive. And to bear testimony. And the Lord knew that they needed to have the greatest, the highest standard of evidence to go on. And so he gave it to them. And he left no stone unturned. There is nothing that he does not do to demonstrate his bodily reality to them. The Lord is risen bodily and in truth. So much more, really, I suppose, could be said, but in some sense, the, the point is so very simple. Back then, and today, there are those who imagine that the resurrection is only a semi-resurrection. And the Lord wants us to know it's not true. And our first application is to say, believe the good news. The good news. I know it's hard to believe. I know that. You know why? Because we know the disciples. The disciples whom the Lord Jesus had chosen to be his own people. Whom most of the the eleven certainly and most of the others had been with him for these three years, and yet they were so slow to believe it. So, and they, they, and as it were, it came in stages that they received some little part of it. Maybe there's a glimmer of hope, and they were trying, and they they thought, well, maybe it's possibly true in one sense, but actually, the rest of themselves were fighting against it. And looking for some shred or some small print to say it's not a real resurrection. It's nice that the Lord may be risen. But of course he wouldn't actually be in the same body. It's not that kind of resurrection. Well friends, if there's been some doubt in your heart. I want you to know that there's no need. You don't have to hang on to that doubt. If you want to, nobody, unfortunately I can't stop you. Lord can, of course. I can't stop you. And if that's your intention, is that I have these doubts and nobody's possibly going to ever disabuse me of them, then you carry on as you are. But if you have any sincere desire to receive the truth and to be free of those doubts, I want you to know that there's nothing that the Lord could have done more to demonstrate 
to his people and to us forever that he really was alive. And in fact, the, the, the slowness of the belief of his disciples was, was only of great benefit to us. What if they had been so re- ready to believe? Well, that would have been good for them. And, and the very moment they hear any rumor that he's risen, oh, yes, he is risen. Of course he is. We knew that he would be. He said that he was going to be. We wouldn't have the opportunity for all these various proofs. But in God's providence, we have them. And there is nothing more real in this universe than the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that and be saved. That's the gospel. Second, I want to just say something about our interaction with compromised theology and the sort of thing that you're going to hear. Sort of thing our young people hear um, in uh, RE classes, for instance, because the scholars, the so-called scholars of the world, are just like the disciples, only worse. Uh, Because they know these things that the disciples eventually knew, uh, yet they still choose to disbelieve in the bodily resurrection. And so popular theology of our day still does that in various ways. I'll just quote a paper that I wrote dealing with this particular modern theologian, very, very popular, hugely influential, and lots of our most famous evangelicals draw from this, this theologian. Well, he says, according to what he says, Paul, quote, saw, and it's in quotation, saw Jesus, the Lord, in 1 Corinthians 9. But this, quote, seeing evidently took the form of an inward experience. Quote, it pleased God through his grace to reveal his son in me. You see how he's twisting his words. So he's saying that's, that's just an inward experience, and that's the way we're supposed to understand it. We ought probably to imagine the women's experience of Christ at the tomb and the disciples' experience in Galilee as being not very different than this. It's not really see him, but there was some sort of inward experience. And this man can at times use language like historic as opposed to historical. Watch out when you read. Is there any difference between historic and historical? If you're, if you're trying to be slippery and slimy and not be forthright, yes, there is. Historic as opposed to historical, that sounds like he's affirming the bodily resurrection of Jesus. But historic for him means only that the concept of resurrection creates the possibility of a better future for humanity. You get that? That's what he's saying. That the historic resurrection of Jesus only means, not that he really rose, but it's created wonderful possibilities for the future of humanity. How about that? But when he's speaking plainly, this man is speaking plainly on the issue, he disabuses us. He says, resurrection of the dead, first of all, excludes any idea of a revivification of the dead Jesus. Okay? Now, you have to catch him. You have to read all of his books to finally come to that. But when you do, you realize he doesn't believe in the, in, in the resurrection at all. Okay? Friends, this is the fine print version of the resurrection. It's been around for a long time. And you will encounter it uh, in, in your days. Now, if somebody wants to make up a religion, a play religion, a fake religion, in which Jesus' resurrection wasn't real and bodily, they, they can do that if they want. But I want us to be very clear that that has nothing to do with biblical Christianity. There's biblical Christianity and fake religion, and those things are very different. Biblical Christianity 
want, excludes, talking about excluding any possibility, it excludes any possibility of anything less than a fully real bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to have some religion apart from that, well, you can, I suppose. But you have to understand that this message that we preach has no other possibility than a really risen, bodily risen Christ. Thirdly and finally, let me just say that we should witness, we should testify about this. We're going to say more about it, Lord willing, in a future sermon, but we can't forget that we have information that others need to know. In fact, over time, we sort of have more information. We have it at a higher level. We have it at a deeper level. And maybe we, we receive the report, but maybe now we understand, wait, he really, really is risen. Do you understand that? Do you know? Jesus, I'm sure you've heard about this, but no, he really is risen. He's there. He still has the scars. He's alive. He's breathing. And we need to tell people that. And there ought to be some urgency. We know that sadly sometimes it becomes old news to us. But how I pray that we would be reinvigorated with the wonderful truth of the resurrection and that we'd have some beautiful urgency to go tell people about that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this very simple message, a simple message with a whole lot of evidence that you have given to us. And we have no reason left, we have no avenue to pursue, to imagine that the Lord Jesus Christ isn't truly risen in, in body as well as in spirit. Lord, we see these things very, very clearly, and you went to great lengths to demonstrate them. And you even used the sinful unbelief of the disciples in order that we might have more information, more data, more evidence to go on. And Heavenly Father, having done all this, how we pray that we would at least receive these things, that you would do away with all doubts in our hearts, the light of your word and the spirit would come upon us, and this realization that these disciples on the way to Emmaus, they finally had, no, the Lord is risen indeed. These things would dawn upon us as well, and that we ourselves would have joy and peace, and that we would gladly tell others this most important information. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.